This episode was brought to you by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 140. Hello, ladies and gents. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City Story Universe. You can find my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. And I am here in Balticon with author and podcaster Christiana Ellis. Hello. Christiana, you've done some really cool stuff over the course of your time in the community. You did the uh, Nina Kimberly, the Merciless, mm-hmm. which was was that that was a, was that a straight read or a uh, the, full cast? So I it, a straight read essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, although the first version of it, because I did a remastered version, which is a whole other conversation. Right. But uh, the first version was all me with the exception of I did have T. Morris do one character in one episode. Got it. Because in particular it was a like sports commentator type of character and it felt enough different that it seemed fitting that you could have that character be separate. Cool. And then you had Space Casey, which mm-hmm. was a full cast audio drama. With special effects and uh, full ca- you know, full voice cast and uh, music and sound effects and so on. Mm-hmm. And your most recent project is Phyllis Esposito, which tell just tell us about it because you've, you've explained <laughs> this to me once, but it's sort of beggar's description. Sure. Uh, well, so right now the only format that it's in is in text, but it was a daily serial that I wrote last year where every single day I wrote at least 500 words continuing the story and then would post it each day. And so it's a little bit of a higher wire act experiment in storytelling just to see how it would go. And I was uh, pretty pleased with how it went. And I wrote it for something like uh, around nine months, I think, before I finished the story at about 145,000 words. But it's a story, uh, Phyllis Esposito, Interdimensional Private Eye. And the basic premise is that I start with your standard noir detective opener, but with a few science fictional elements added. But by the time you get a little ways into the story, you have nanobots and magical elves and all seers who can experience the emotions of their parallel selves across different dimensions and cyborgs and aliens and so on. You don't do anything the easy way, do you? (laughs) Haven't yet. What has led you to these very unconventional forms of storytelling? I don't know. I guess I'm I'm interested in experimentation, and I also have a tendency when writing to maybe become overly precious about stuff and not want to put it out because it's not ready yet. And so I occasionally feel the need to do something a little different in order to kind of force myself to put it out. And the, the Daily Serial is certainly an example of that. It was... The whole idea is, well, I know I have to put out the next bit and it doesn't matter, you know, whether I feel like it today or not, because that's the rule that I've set for myself. And the difficulty, of course, in doing it that way is that it's definitely storytelling as you go. So there's no discovery later of like, oh, well, 
I can make this thing work if I just go back and change who this character was looking for in that earlier scene. Nope, that you can't do that because it's already set. And I realized a little bit belatedly that a mystery is not perhaps the ideal genre to try that experiment with. <laughs> no, perhaps not. <laughs> um, I was fairly happy with how I was able to ultimately resolve it. The mystery element is more or less resolved in, I'd say, the first third or so. The, the story kind of naturally breaks into about three acts, and the, the first act is kind of the mystery, and then after that, you like you know what's happening, but what do you do about it? Got it, got it. So it becomes an adventure story mm-hmm. at that point. Right. And as far as the, you know, the previous versions, N- Nina Kimberly the Merciless, my first podcast novel, was pretty much just a straight novel that I had written first. Mm -hmm. And I had sent it around a little bit and hadn't gotten a lot of traction, but I was so enthusiastic about the podcasting medium and I had missed doing like theater and stuff like that. And so honestly, the appeal of doing my own audiobook for it was something I wanted to do completely separate from any other consideration of market or that sort of thing because honestly this was back in March 2006 when I launched it and although there were some other patio books out there I was not the first by any imagination but it was early still and I think you know there were not a lot out there that weren't books that were already published in some other form and so I had real concern this like if I put it out this way is that going to prevent any future possibility of any kind of other publishing and it actually worked the reverse in the sense that I got the print contract with Dragon Moon Press as a result of doing the podcast as opposed to the other way around if you had it to do over again in the modern publishing context things have changed a lot since Mm -hmm. 2006 what would you do differently in terms of how you sold, created, presented marketed Nina Kimberly? I'm not sure I would change that much, honestly. There's a lot of people who are really looking to make writing their day job, and like that is the stated goal, and you make creative decisions based on what's going to further that goal. And that's 100%, like, that's a legitimate approach. I'm not saying I would turn it down if I was suddenly making so much money that I could quit my day job, (laughs) but I've never kind of felt like I needed it to be more than a hobby Mm -hmm. that I do because I enjoy it. And so in some ways, what that means is that if there's some part of the process that I don't enjoy, I just don't do it. But I don't want to make that sound like, oh, I've got something figured out because (laughs) a lot of times I'm just throwing spaghetti at the wall and then reaching for another handful before I've even seen what's stuck. But so, for example, in terms of thinking about the model today, I have Phyllis Esposito, and my plan with that is right now it's all on my website, uh, and anyone can read it for free on my site through a webcomic plugin. Mm. And so it'll be each sort of 500 word or so chunk, and then you hit next chapter, next chapter, next chapter. You can read through the whole thing that way. But part of the experiment in putting the story out that way, kind of part of what that told me is that that's maybe not the way most people prefer to consume long fiction. Mm -hmm. And so I'm looking to do an ebook version of it. And that's something I'm kind of working on in the background and, you know, probably edit it so it's a little bit more consumable and not so obviously in these daily chunks. But I'm probably, for that one, not going to go out and like I'm not going to hire an editor to do like a developmental 
edit for it, I'm going to say, this is the story, this is what it is. So I might get like proofreading and try to avoid there being any typos or anything, but like that's the story and that's, I'm going to put it out myself and that'll be it. And I'll probably do an audio version as well. Mm -hmm. And for that, I haven't completely made up my mind whether I want to do free podcast or, you you know, there's lots of options with things like Audible now. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking at some of those things, but it's a little ways off because I don't have that produced yet even though the story is complete but by contrast I have another novel that I've been working on and I would say is almost to the beta reader stage and that one I'm more inclined to say well hey how about for this one let's give another crack at the traditional route and see what happens with that that's kind of where I'm at right now is not ruling out any particular option, but treating each work like kind of its own thing. Okay. So yeah, you're pursuing this in sort of an experimental yeah. phase. Okay. Yeah. And uh, to a large extent, that's kind of always been what I do. I, like I have a lot of podcasts to the point where it's kind of become like a joke. Everyone talks about like, oh, you have so many podcasts. And in some ways, it, I'm a little bit of a dilettante that way. I don't put all of my effort into any one thing, but rather, you know, I kind of half-ass a dozen (laughs) things all at the same time. I don't know. It's like I said, I I enjoy the process of it frequently, and so lots of times I'm doing things because I enjoy them, not necessarily because I'm thinking it's the right business strategy. So to each their own as far as how they want to (laughs) manage their creative careers. Fair enough. What do you think is your biggest strength as a writer? I like to think that I'm good at dialogue, certainly in terms of what I enjoy the most about my own writing. I think it's dialogue and having characters that are fun to listen to as they speak and interact with each other. And especially like when I'm going back and doing like the second or third draft of something, I find that the parts I enjoy the most are the dialogue and conversations. So I think that's maybe my favorite. But I guess what I'm also always trying to do with anything I'm writing is just trying to make sure there's me in it, if that makes sense. Because obviously one of the things that people talk about sometimes in writing is like, oh, you know, good writers borrow, great artists steal. I kind of mixed that saying up. But, you know, that idea of like, is an idea valuable in and of itself or is it only execution that's worth something? And we know what copyright law says. Well, <laughs> the idea cannot be copyrighted. Right. Only the and execution can. <laughs> exactly. And so, like, I was writing stories back to middle school. Mm-hmm. But there was a period in high school and into college where I stopped writing altogether because what I realized is that a story that I was writing, I had accidentally copied the plot of a book that I had read previously. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty close. It was kind of beat for beat. And I hadn't even realized I was doing it. And so it was definitely not any kind of a deliberate plagiarism, but once I realized what I was doing, it suddenly became this crisis of like, oh God, what if I've never had an original idea in my life and I'm only ever copying things that I've seen before? (laughs) And so I stopped writing for a while. But what kind of ultimately helped me push through that a little bit is just the idea of, well, even if something's similar, if I'm always trying to filter whatever the idea is or the story is through me, through my own personality and experiences, then not only will it likely be a work of art that I'm more pleased with in the end, but it also will be enough different from someone else's execution of that idea that it's not a problem. 
Right. Yeah. It makes me think about, I've just listened to Neil Gaiman's Norse mythology, listened to it on the drive. And obviously these are stories that have been around for thousands of years. They're not original stories, but in the process of telling it, Neil picks and chooses and makes them his own and puts his own spin on things. And you listen to it and yes, it is an ancient, ancient story, but it is also unequivocally a Neil Gaiman story. So if you can do that with (laughs) stories that old, you could do it with just about anything. Yeah. And I think that that's ultimately the key is trying to have whatever story you're telling be filtered through your own sensibility. And I know like one of the things that I've kind of found myself drawn to recently creatively is kind of pastiches of things. Mm. And certainly, like Phyllis Esposito, as I kind of described, I mean, by its very conception, it's like, well, what happens if we have a universe where just literally anything can be in it? Elves, magic, aliens, spaceships, cyborgs, and noir detectives. And just literally just mash it all together. But then also think about what would that mean for the world in which all of these things are around? Mm -hmm. And so, for example, the city in which Phyllis lives and operates is a city where this sort of dimension hopping is something that is known but expensive. Mm -hmm. And so for most people, it's something that you might do once in a while, kind of like an international flight or something like that. But it's not a regular day-to-day thing. And there's ideas of, naturally, if people can jump between parallel dimensions and set the portals anywhere they want in a physical space, like there's a lot of security concerns that that could raise. And so there's things like, well, you know, the city government has technology that allows them to put wards against portals in certain neighborhoods. And what they tend to do is put it in the poor neighborhoods and, you know, that sort of thing. But then you also have the part of the city, the neighborhood, where people from other dimensions tend to congregate, and it's called Little Narnia. And uh, I love it. And so you have the, the idea of, like, well, what is the effect on the world of these sorts of things? And it's fun because it allows all of these sort of metaphorical ideas. Like, so for example, when the case is not going very well and Phyllis feels the need to go on a bender somewhere where she knows she won't get found while she's unconscious, she has a safe house that's basically in a world where all of humanity has been wiped out by a virus that's now gone, but it's got this fine city that's empty. And so she has like this penthouse apartment in a nice building in an empty dead city. Jeez, that's that's morbid. (laughs) And that's where she goes to hide out, like when she needs to get out of town for a while. And then that becomes later a problem where like, okay, well, she needs to take someone else to hide out. So she takes them there, but then that becomes a bigger problem and that sort of thing. But it allows all of these different places. So like once the story transitions from the mystery part to more of a quest of like, how do we figure out how to solve this problem? It coincidentally turns into a part where they've all been now stranded in a more fantasy type dimension and her little portal generator isn't working so she can't get them out. And so now they actually have to travel to see this sorceress who's gonna have the way that they can beat the curse that's gonna solve the the problem. So they're off to see the wizard. Yeah. (laughs) 
And so I find myself drawn to those sorts of pastiches. And so, for example, the, the other novel that I'm working on, it's not quite so wide a variety, but the basic concept there is taking steampunk-style mecha suit plus Frankenstein-style monster suit, and those two people have to team up to fight War of the Worlds-style aliens, and also there's the Illuminati. And it's all set among, like, turn-of-the-century London in sort of the version of the turn-of-century London where those things would exist. Nice. What is your advice for writers who want to do comedy better? Because your comedy is a real strength in your work. Oh, thank you. Um, I definitely, in some ways, I feel a confidence in the humorist stuff almost more than I do for drama, which I know is kind of the reverse for a lot of people. The whole saying of, you know, dying is easy, comedy is hard, that sort of thing. But in some ways, I think humor can be like a distancing mechanism. You know what I mean? It's like it's a way to keep people at arm's length. You know, you sort of charm them with the joke and that keeps them from getting too close to where it really hurts or something like that. But then again, that can also be a good source of drama. Because, for example, Space Casey, it is a comedy. It's not intending to be a drama with humor. It's a comedy. But there are places where I kind of let the cracks show a little bit. You know, the places where it's like, okay, well, we can see how something's actually kind of starting to get to Casey, even through this bluster that she projects. But as far as how to write it, I mean, without wanting to say, like, can't be taught or something like that, the way that I have always just approached it myself is, well, what do I think is funny? If I think it's funny, then I have to just trust that other people will too. Right. And so I really just don't focus at all on trying to guess what other people will think is funny. I just say, okay, well, what do I think is funny? And one of the things that you learn in the last couple of years, I've actually been taking some improv comedy classes. Mm. And one of the things that is a neat trick once you can start to do it is don't go with the first thing that comes to mind. And so, for example, when you want to connect something, don't connect A to B. What you do is in your head make the A to B and then the B to C and then show the A to C. Because a lot of humor comes from subverting expectation, Mm -hmm. right? What you think is going to happen and then what actually does happen. And you need both pieces you need to set them up to think they know what's going to happen and then twist it. And so the A to C example is, it's not so far, it's not A to Q. So A to C is close enough, people still can follow it, but it's they thought you were going to B and you went to C. Right. And like that's sort of just a metaphor that's hard to directly apply to any specific situation. But a way to apply that would just be to say, don't necessarily just stick with your first idea for what the joke might be or what the punchline or something is or the way a certain scene might turn. But ultimately, the biggest key I would just say is trust your own sense of humor. If you think it's funny, other people will think it's funny. Not everybody necessarily, but not everybody has the same sense of humor. So Right. You talked about the importance of making sure that you put a lot of yourself into your work. And I agree that's incredibly important. I also think that especially when writers are starting out, there's a tremendous danger to strip out the parts of you that are distinctive in the editing process. Mm. It's so easy to 
like, especially if you've got somebody like a developmental editor that you're working with and they've got their own opinions and their mm-hmm. own voice and their own perspective, which is different from yours. Yeah. And so you've worked with developmental editors. So well, what do you do? Like, how do you judge when it's time to listen to somebody else and take that piece out versus saying, no, that's me. That's my voice. It stays in. Well, I think this definitely comes back to the idea of, well, what is your goal? Mm-hmm. Right? Because there have been times, for example, I, I have a novel that's currently shelved because I'm not happy with where it is. I don't want to put it out in the state that it's in. But it's been rewritten like four or five times because I feel like there's something there and I just haven't gotten it right. And at a certain point, you could almost argue, well, maybe I should just put it out until I could be done with it. Mm-hmm. But that is a good example of a story that I got some good constructive feedback from you know a pro editor from a publishing house and like the answer was no we don't want to buy it but with some nice feedback on it but at the same time their feedback was this reads kind of like a YA book which I was not surprised by here are the things that we would want you to change before we really be willing to consider it. And it was like, they made it clear. It's like, we're not saying make these changes and we'll buy it, but here are the things that we would suggest. And In order to make it a YA book or to make it not a YA book? Well, they were kind of saying that the problem is that it's sort of straddling both, is that what it's doing is it has a YA feel, but it's not following the YA tropes. Got it. And so they kind of were talking about, well, maybe these two characters could have a romantic subplot and maybe you could make this character, you know, younger instead of, you know, they could be brothers instead of father and son or something like that. And all of those were probably good ideas if the goal is to say, I want this to be a big publisher YA book. Mm -hmm. Like, what are they looking for to put out I mean, they told me straight out. They were saying, like, if this was to be something we were going to consider, we would think it would need to be more like X. And while I'm interested in that feedback, and I don't want to say no because I don't want to do that, and it's not like I consider my story so precious to me that I can't accommodate changes, but at the same time, the book they're describing as what they want is not the story that I wrote. Right. And so it's up to me at that point to decide what it is that I want. Am I trying to write a story that they will buy, or am I trying to tell the best version of the story that I wrote? Right. And at least right now, I mean, (laughs) that story is on the shelf. I'm not doing anything with it at the moment. So I'm not sure that that's good advice exactly. Right. But at the same time, if what you're looking for is to be published by a big publisher, then you can't ignore what they say they want, right? Mm -hmm. Now, that's not to say you shouldn't try to still tell your own voice, but it becomes a question of their opinion really does matter if you're going to have them do the publishing. Right. Whereas if you're going to do something more like self-publishing, you know, as an ebook or something, you know, print on demand, or if you're going to do it yourself... You really don't have to make it huge to some existing subgenre so that they know where to put it on the shelf at the bookstore. And we've seen how some of our compatriots have had tremendous commercial success 
by doing their own thing, breaking all the rules. Nathan yeah. Lowell comes to mind. Mm-hmm. You know, he is doing very well for himself selling a book that no publisher in their right minds yeah. would buy because it breaks all the rules. On the face of it, yeah. It's, and so I think I think I always get a little hesitant with questions like this just because I don't remotely feel like I've got it figured out. Yeah. So it's hard for me to give advice in that regard. Mm-hmm. But I know that what I want out of my own writing is to tell stories that are meaningful to me and it's almost, I don't want to say incidental, but I prioritize that over marketability personally. Mm-hmm. And that's my decision for my writing, and it's perfectly legitimate for people to make the reverse decision. Mm-hmm. you know. And so as I'm looking now at my two sort of current things that I'm working on, I'm looking at doing different approaches for each because they're kind of different beasts in my brain. So the novel that I'm considering going a more traditional route, or at least exploring that before going a self-publishing route, that one, I'm, I feel like I'm more willing to be open to how can this be shaped to reach the widest audience possible without disrupting in, entirely. But Phyllis Esposito, I mean, like, the whole thing was an experiment to just, like, let's see if this works. Yeah. And I was pretty happy with the result, but at some point it feels poorly thought out to even think of that as trying to mold it into some traditional thing, because it just really never was that to begin with. Exactly. There comes a point where it's like, you have to recognize the art for itself and let it be what it is, you know? You're not going to turn a Jackson Pollock into a Monet. Right. It's not trying to be. It never was. Right. And so, like, for the example is, like, this story was written as a serial that I put a little bit out every single day that I was not allowed within the rules that I set for myself to go back and change things. Mm -hmm. And that's not how you write a traditionally structured novel. And so it's not a traditionally structured novel. I mean, even if I put all the chunks end to end, it's not going to read like that. It might read more like a TV show, maybe. Mm -hmm. But then again, I think that there's actually a lot of inspiration from TV show and serial type of storytelling that's a growing part of the industry in general because, partly because there's so much great TV out there right now. TV has become a medium for such impressive storytelling that it just makes sense that people are going to draw inspiration from that. That's true. Where can people find your stuff, Christiana? <laughs> Everything I do goes up at com. The entire run of Phyllis Esposito, Interdimensional Private Eye, is all there for free if you're willing to read it in 500-word chunks. (laughs) And that's where all my stuff goes. And when can we expect the book in print? Uh, I I don't have a date. (laughs) I'm working on it. All right. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. 
If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more writing goodness. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.